Okay, take your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth 1. Beginning our series in Ruth, and as I mentioned, I'm going to ask some questions throughout. How many? I'm not quite sure yet. But um, I would like those... I'm recording this series. I'd like this series to be recorded. And um, as such, if I ask questions and the answers aren't recorded, um, it's less than helpful to the ones listening. So, uh, Evan still has the microphone. And if you have an answer, raise your hand and give that answer when Evan comes around with the microphone. And you can answer it on the microphone. Book of Ruth. Now, we finished last week in Judges, or two weeks ago in Judges. Uh, Last week, we took a little bit of a break to talk about um, some apologetics. And we finished in Judges, kind of, well, all of Judges was a low note, but the end of Judges was a really low note. Can somebody help me remind everyone, remind the group, where we finished in the book of Judges? What was happening at the end of the book of Judges? At the end of the book of Judges, we recall a civil war. A civil war between Israel and Benjamin. And... As that civil war progressed, 40,000 of the nation of Judah died. The entire tribe of Benjamin died, save how many? Evan, if you could, I think someone's going to have their hand for this one. Um, raise your hand if you know how many. Let, let Evan get you the mic. It'll, it'll, it'll become routine eventually, I promise. Cheryl. It was like 300 or... Not, not 300. Four, 600? 600, very good. 600. 600 Benjamites were left. And, and why there were actually two numbers involved here. And the reason being because as there were 600 Benjamites who had fled into the rock and hid themselves, uh, we recall Israel looked around and said, well, we can't give our daughters to them to, uh, for wives. So who did not come up? And there was a particular um, city who did not come up to help Israel. And when um, they destroyed this city, they took the young ladies who had not been married from that city. And how many of those were in the city? How many young ladies were there in the city that they took for the men of Benjamin? Evan? 200? 200? Not 200. Elise, hang on. Let me get you the mic here. 300? Not 300. We're getting warmer. Peyton? It was 400. It was 400. Very good. It was 400. And so there were 400. And we recall that they gave these 400 to the Benjamites, but there was still a problem. They said there's still 200 men that don't have wives. So they said, well, here's the deal. We have a feast coming up. And in that feast, the women of Shechem are going to come out and dance. And... These other 200 guys, just go grab yourself one of them and run for the hills and you'll have wives. And so Benjamin begins to repopulate at that time. Now, as we look into the book of Ruth, some things we need to understand from the outset. The book of Ruth took place at the time of the judges. Notice verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. So it was at the time when... The judges ruled. That means it was at the time when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, what's important, you see in that second point there on the overhead, the interaction of Ruth and Boaz, as we'll see it in this book, stand in direct contrast to the men and the women reflected in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we see some judges who uh, served the Lord, and yet by and large, the people in the book of Judges did that which was right in their own eyes. They went in their own direction. They disregarded God. In this book, we're going to see a man and a woman who take great care not to disregard God and His law. It shows the contrast. The interactions... In the judges, we see men of strength, we see men of valor, but these men of strength and valor lack in biblical or spiritual or godly character. 
But we'll see the contrast with this woman named Ruth. She's a foreigner. She's a woman. She is weak. She has no means of sustaining herself or her mother-in-law. She is in a foreign land. It's not her own. She's not a Jew. And yet for all of these disadvantages, weakness, poverty, she has tremendous spiritual character. And that is the contrast that the book of Ruth wants us to see. The contrast between those that did what was right in their own eyes and this beautiful story happening at the same time, reminding us that even in the midst of terrible situations and circumstances, there are men and women who are doing right. Now, we have some hints as to exactly when it is that this is going on. The famine in the land helps us out because uh, we know from history of a time where uh, the Midianites came through and salted many of the fields. We know that that happened in Israel as well. Most conservative scholars believe that this, the book of Ruth happened about the same time as Gideon. This would have been earlier um, in the days of the judges, but nowhere near as early as the Civil War. We know that that was right after the time of the judges began. This would have been after that, but um, still not, it's not happening late in the time of the judges. Gideon was not late in the time of the judges. Now, the book of Ruth is part of what the Hebrews call, or the Jews call, the Megaloth. The Megaloth is a set of five books that's read on various feast days throughout the year. The book of Ruth is read during the Feast of Weeks. Can anyone else, can anyone remind me what the Feast of Weeks, what other name we give to the Feast of Weeks? I have an answer in the microphone. Booths? Um, not booths. Feast of Week. Troy has got a hand there, I think. Pentecost. Very good. Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost. So, knowing what we know about the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, around what time would this be happening? What what, what month? What day is the Feast of Pentecost? Jared knows that one. Hang on, wait for the microphone. I ask it in the right way, I think we'll get answers. Sivan 6. The 6th of Sivan. And the Pentecost surrounded a particular time of year. What time of year was Pentecost around? Do you recall from our feast purposes that we're studying in Sunday school? Brady, is that sort of maybe a hand? Yeah, that's sort of maybe a hand. Told you you'd be running tonight, Evan. The harvest. The harvest, harvest, particularly the barley harvest. Now, as we get through the book of Ruth, we'll find out that she'll be doing some some threshing. It is right around this time that we would expect this. So, anyway, the book of Ruth, they read it at the the time of, of the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. And as we see the harvest happening, this is about that time that Ruth was threshing on the threshing floor that Boaz redeemed her. And so they read the book of Ruth during the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. How many days after Passover is the Feast of Pentecost? While we're on the topic. Anyone remember? Jared knows. 50 days. 50 days, very good. 50 days. Now, Esther is read during the Feast of Purim. My wife and I were just reading this, I guess this morning we finished Esther, if you're on the, the yearly Bible reading plan. My wife and I were just reading this, and, and it talked about this, that um, the 13th, 14th, and 15th day of the last month, and it was by the religious calendar, because it was using the month Adar, and talking about how they established the feast, and this was a feast on the day of Pur, or the day of the Lot. And so they called it Purim, the Feast of Lot. And that feast is to inaugurate or commemorate the time when Haman's 
schemes were destroyed before God and before the Jews. So Esther is read during the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Booths, which feast is that? Evan had booths as his answer earlier. What, what is, what's that feast also called? Taylor knows. Tabernacles. Very good. The Feast of Tabernacles. And so, when did that feast, when would that feast take place? On the Hebrew religious calendar. Or civil for that matter. It's in the seventh month. Be the month Tishri. be the 15th through the 21st and then we add the 22nd is it 15th 14th 15th right 15th through the 21st and then we add that 22nd that eighth day um, of the feast of tabernacles and we were reading in nehemiah i guess late last week and it talked about them keeping the feast of tabernacles and it talked about that eighth day uh in the feast as well and so even back in the time of nehemiah they had the eighth day on top of that feast And so that would be the Feast of Tabernacles. And they read Ecclesiastes. Interesting. During the Passover. When was Passover? Taylor knows. Nisan 14. 14th day of Nisan, the 14th day of the first month. And on Passover, they would read Song of Solomon. Hmm. And then finally, Lamentations. Now, Lamentations is read. It's in the Megaloth. It's read on the ninth of Av. It's also called in Hebrew, if you're familiar with it, Tishba'av. Does anybody know the significance of the ninth of Av? This is not one of our feast days that we've memorized. It's not really a feast day at all. The ninth of Av might be considered to be the most tragic day on the Hebrew calendar. I have a printout here. What happened on the 9th of Av? The 9th of Av, Tishba Av, commemorates a list of catastrophes so severe, it's clearly a day specially cursed by God. Picture this. The year is 1313 B.C. The Israelites are in the desert, recently having experienced the miraculous exodus, and are now poised to enter the Promised Land. But first, they dispatch a reconnaissance mission to assist in formulating a prudent battle strategy. The spies returned on the eighth day of Av and and report that the land is unconquerable. That night, the ninth of Av, the people cry. They insist that they'd rather go back to Egypt than be slaughtered by the Canaanites. God is highly displeased by this public demonstration of distrust in His power, and consequently, that generation of Israelites never enters the Holy Land. Only their children have that privilege after wandering in the desert for another 38 years. The first temple, that's Solomon's temple, was also destroyed on the 9th of Av. Five centuries later, how, how long is a century? You don't need the microphone for this, Jared. 100 years, very good. A century is 100 years. Five centuries, 500 years later... As the Romans drew closer to the second temple, ready to torch it, the Jews were shocked to realize that their second temple was destroyed on the same day as the first, the ninth of Av. When the Jews rebelled against Roman rule, they believed that their leader, Simon bar Kokhba, would fulfill their messianic longings. But their hopes were cruelly dashed in 133 AD as the Jewish rebels were brutally butchered in the final battle at Batar. The date of the massacre? The ninth of Av. One year after the conquest of Batar, the Romans plowed over the Temple Mount, our nation's holiest site. The Jews were expelled from England in 1290 A.D. on the 9th of Av. In 1492, the Golden Age of Spain came to a close when Queen Isabella and her husband Ferdinand ordered that the Jews be banished from the land. The Edict of Expulsion was signed on March 31, 1492, and the Jews were given exactly four months to 
their affairs in order and leave the country. The Hebrew date on which no Jew was allowed any longer to remain in the land where he enjoyed welcome and prosperity, the 9th of Av. World War II and the Holocaust, historians conclude, was actually the long, drawn-out conclusion of World War I that began in 1914. And yes, amazingly enough, Germany declared war on Russia, effectively catapulting the First World War into motion on the 9th of Av. Now, some of that might be a little bit of a stretch as you read it, such as that last little bit about First World War and the Second World War where the Jews were actually slaughtered, being an extension of the First World War. But the fact of the matter is, all this stuff happened on the ninth day of Av. It's a terrible day to the Jews. Now, this, par this particular ninth of Av, the commemoration as it would have been in the Megaloth, was started after the temple was destroyed. And so this, this day of remembrance was a day to remember the terrible day that the, Sol the, the temple of Solomon was destroyed and thus they read the book of Lamentations. That makes sense. Now, there is a Hebrew connection between each one of these. The one that intrigues me, or the two I suppose that intrigue me, are booze and Passover. Why read Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon? Maybe that will give you something to meditate on. Why did the Jews associate Song of Solomon with Passover? Why did the Jews associate Ecclesiastes with the Feast of Tabernacles? I can kind of take a guess on that one. Can anyone take a guess on Ecclesiastes? The dedication of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was dedicated during the Feast of Tabernacles that time of year. Um, and so it would make sense that they would read the book written by the preacher um, on the month that would commemorate the dedication of the tabernacle. And so, this is the Megaloth. Uh, the five books that are, that are read during the Jewish feast days, Ruth is one of those books read during the Feast of Weeks. See, and you thought all this uh, calendar memorization stuff was not going to help you. Look at all these great answers you've been able to come up with tonight because you knew those Hebrew feast days and their purposes and all that stuff. Okay, back to, back to Ruth. Ruth 1. It says, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now remember, we're in the time of the judges. Say, of course, I know, Pastor, we're in the time of the judges. You mentioned that already. Well, remember that we're in the time of the judges. And as we think about that, we are looking at a city called Bethlehem, Judah. Now, can somebody tell me, what, where have we come across Bethlehem, Judah before in the book of Judges? Turn with me to Judges 17. And look with me at verse 7. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I might find a place. And so this was the place where the Levite, who we believe might be Moses' grandson, um, was originally. Now there was another place in Judges, just after this, where we see Bethlehem come up again. Can anyone remember that next occasion? Look with me in chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. And his concubine played the whore against him and went away with, uh, from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah and was there four months. So not any prominent place in the book of Judges, but do recall that we're talking about the same place. This city of Bethlehem, Judah was the same place where the concubine lived. 
This city of Bethlehem, Judah, was the same place where this Levite lived, where he was based. And so it is possible that Boaz and Elimelech and Naomi would have been familiar with these people, would have been familiar with this Levite. It depends on how much time had passed and those sorts of things, or at least with their families. Okay, very good. Bethlehem, Judah. And it says that this certain man in Ruth chapter 1 went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. They came to the country of Moab and continued there. So the man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech being the Hebrew word. There's Eli and Melech. You remember Jesus Christ on the cross? What did Jesus Christ cry unto God in in Hebrew when He was on the cross? Does anyone remember? He cried. You You can do the English version. What did He cry, Evan? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I believe it's I believe the Hebrew is in one of the passages. Eli. Eli. Or I believe in another one. It's Eloi. Eloi. Lama sabachthani. That Eli there. Eli. My God. My God. It's right there. Eli. Elimelech. Melech. The word for king. Eli. The words, my God. My God, my God. Why hast thou... El being the word for God. The Li at the end. Me. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Or here, my God is, you add the being verb, my God is king. My God is king. Naomi's name, Nanyomi, means my delight. Nanyom, delight. The me, my. Nanyomi, my delight. Their children's names, Malan and Kilion. The names literally mean sick and pining. Now, it's interesting. One might think, well, did they give them their names after they died? Because we're going to see here in a moment, Malon and Kilion are going to die. Well, no. These are legitimate Hebrew names. They're found throughout the Hebrew um, history. Malon and Kilion. I don't know necessarily why um, people would name their children sick and pining when names meant something in that day. But maybe at this time in Hebrew history, names didn't mean quite as much. Kind of like today in our culture, you don't really care what your name means unless your parents name you something special like Carson Alethea, right? Or maybe your name means something and you'd rather people not know what your name means because it's kind of weird or off the wall, but it sounds pretty in English. So your name is what your name is and that's fine. Um, but they were named Malon and Kilion and we'll see that they lived up to their names quite well as we go on through the, the, the text. Now it's interesting. Does anybody know, and I'm not necessarily expecting you to know, but does anybody know what the name Bethlehem means? Bethlehem? It means house of bread. Beth means house, lachem being the word for bread, house of bread. And so there's a little bit of irony as we begin the book that this man Elimelech and his wife Naomi leave the fields of bread to go sojourn in the fields of Moab, in the country of Moab, because there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the promised land. What are the implications? The biblical implications of there being a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. What does that mean in regard to the nation of Israel? I hope I'm being clear in my asking of the question. Maybe I'm not. God promised 
some things to Israel. Remember when they stood on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and they yelled the blessings and cursings back and forth? God promised Israel that if they kept the law of God, that they would not want for bread, that, there would be, that they, the plagues of Egypt would never come upon them, that they would be fruitful in the land, that there would be plenty, that they would have many children, that they would never be conquered in battle, that these things would, would, the blessings would come upon them if they kept the law of God. And God told them, if you do not keep the law of God, if you do not keep my law, then expect some cursings. Expect every plague of Egypt to come upon you. Expect your children to die young. Expect famine. Expect pestilence. Expect to be overrun. Expect to be in captivity. Expect to be destroyed. And so, whatever point of the judges Israel is in right now in Ruth, we know that there is sin in the land still because there's a famine in the land. And famines would not happen if they were doing what was right. Which probably means that if we think about our cycle of apostasy, they are most likely in the captivity phase right now under Moab. They are most likely, they're not following God because then there would be blessing. They're probably fall into idolatry and have been delivered into the hands of their enemies and are awaiting that point where there would be a deliverer. It says here that Naomi and Elimelech and Malon and Kilion were Ephrathites. Can somebody explain to me what it means that they were Ephrathites? Ephrath, or um, the Ephrathite, was a description of a person who came from Bethlehem. Does anyone recall a particular prophecy? And now Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be the least among the um, children of Israel, something to that effect, it's in um, Malachi, right? Or Micah, it's one of those M's. Is it Malachi? Micah. Micah, thank you. Uh, it's in Micah. And thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata. It wa- they, they were actually um, the name, same name, one for the other. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Genesis 35. The first introduction we have to this place is found in Genesis 35, verse 16. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath, and Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called his name Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So Ephrath, before it was called Bethlehem, the house of bread, it was called Ephrath. That was simply the name beforehand. As we get into Micah, we see it's called Bethlehem Ephrata. And so there is this, this conjunctive name that has taken on um, meaning to the people near the end of the Old Testament. And that is what it means that they were Ephratites. It simply meant that they were those of Bethlehem, Judah. Chapter, uh, chapter 1 of Ruth, verse 3. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Now, there was nothing in the law that strictly forbade Moabites from becoming the wives of the, of the men of Israel. Um, they were not Canaanitish, 
So there was no forbidden, forbiddens there, nor were they one of the particular lands that God said, never ever will you allow uh, a Moabite into your land. So this was not necessarily in that respect against God's law. And it says that they dwelled there. Now, we don't know if this was the entire time they dwelled there or the time after Elimelech died, about 10 years. But it would seem that after this point that Elimelech dies, Malon and Kilian, verse 5, die also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So contemplate the situation with me this evening. Naomi goes with her husband and two sons into the land of Moab. Her husband dies. It's okay. She has two sons. Her two sons die. But before they die, they've taken to them two wives, one each, of the women of Moab. However, they've had no children with these wives as of yet. And so it is just Naomi and these two women. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. Keep an eye on that word return. That word return is a key word found throughout the book. It's a key word found throughout the book of Ruth. The entire theme of the book, there's a few themes in the book and one of the themes that it revolves around is this idea of returning. Returning to the land. Returning to the word of God. Returning to the expectations of God. These elements of returning will be found throughout. She returned from the country of Moab and notice why. She had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. So she's returning from Moab. If the famine is over in Bethlehem, Judah, what is the implication in regard to Israel's spiritual state? Brady. I haven't... You get the mic to Brady. We know at this point that the Lord is not providing for His people, which means that they must be out of fellowship with Him. Um, at this point, and you're in the right direction, but at this point the Lord had visited His people and given them bread. So at this point, we would assume what? So they were in fellowship at this point. At this point, correct. Yes, they were in fellowship. So they were not in fellowship. Therefore, they had been... There, there was famine in the land. And now we would believe that as the Lord has now given His people bread, that the people have repented and have lined themselves up, gotten back into fellowship with God. Thank you, Brady. I'd like us to think before we leave this verse a little bit about Moab as well. Can anyone recall from the Scriptures the origins of Moab as a people? This girl, Ruth, and Orpah, they are both Moabitish women. We said that there was no particular refusal of God to allow the Moabites into the nation of Israel, to allow them to marry in. They're not Canaanitish. They haven't been cursed. But... Well, at least at this point, they haven't been cursed for, for this reason. But where did Moab come from? Does anyone recall? Turn with me to Genesis 19. And this is good. This is uh, what I was hoping for with the beginning of our series is that we could be putting pieces together and seeing all sorts of amazing things connecting these dots so that we can have a good idea as we move forward what we're dealing with. And look at verse 30. Lot has just fled from Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 30 says, And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. And he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto him, unto us, excuse me, after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. 
And they made their father drink that wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay down with her father, and, per and he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn say unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, and go in, thou in and lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Ben-Ami, the, the same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. So Moab had quite infamous beginnings as it is. He was um, the product of an incestu uh, incestuous relationship uh, that which would not have pleased God coming out of uh, the whole sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and all of those terrible circumstances, the circumstances compounded and Moab was a result, as was Ammon. And so that is a little bit of the history of this people, Moab. We know the history of Bethlehem Judah. We know the history of the Moabite people. We know what's happening approximately in Israel at the time. We know that they've fallen away from God. We know that they, their relationship has been restored enough that God is now blessing His people again with bread. It's been at least 10 years since they left Bethlehem, Judah. It could be much longer than that depending on if the 10 years is from when Elimelech died or when they got into the fields of Moab. And now Naomi is prepared to go back. Back into Bethlehem. Verse 7. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Can anyone tell me why, as we see this circumstance, Naomi says this, Ladies, stay here. In Moab, find yourself some new husbands. And they say, no, we're going with you. We're going to go with you. And she says, look, even if I got pregnant tonight with children, would you wait until they were grown so that you could marry them? What's going on there? Why would there even be an expectation that if there were more children, that these ladies, that these women would marry those children? What's happening culturally here? Does anyone know? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy 25, we have a law that is imposed and it's called the leveret marriage. Look at me in verse 5. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. Can anyone explain to me what those two verses said?
Share? Microphone, please. Thank you. The husband dies, then uh -huh. the brother was supposed to take over those duties and um, take that um, widow to himself to be unto her as her husband would have been. And what would be the implication of the child that they would have together, the first child? Hmm. Do you recall? No. Okay. Sorry. Does anyone know what the implication would be? When, when the brother takes this widow and marries her and they have a child, what's the implication with that first child? According to the text here, he would be raised up in the dead brother's name. And so the, the, the dead brother would receive the inheritance. The dead brother would receive the blessing. The dead brother would be the one that that name is continued with that first child. And so they, they're to raise up seed for that, for that brother. And that's a big deal in Israel. That is a big sacrifice. To, to raise up the name of another. It's, it's your brother, certainly, and you love him and those sorts of things, but, but to raise up his inheritance. And so notice, if you're still in Deuteronomy 25, verse 7. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to, refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And there will be a, a procedure to go through when a man is unwilling to do this. We're going to see this happen later on in the book of Ruth. This is the, the law of the leveret marriage. And it was put in place so that a man's name would not disappear from Israel. But there was sacrifice involved. And not everyone was willing to do it. And so Naomi is telling these women, if I could get pregnant tonight, and we, you, would you really wait until these boys were old enough to marry you? I mean, would you really wait that long? It's unreasonable. Stay here, find yourself some husbands, have a family, be happy. Verse 14. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. The idea of Orpah kissing her mother-in-law is she said, you know what, mom is right. I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to find another husband. But Ruth said no. Ruth said no. Verse 15. And she said, Behold, thy sister has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God my God, where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. This is huge. Now, you've heard this in weddings and such before, perhaps, and it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. As Ruth, as Ruth dedicates herself to loving and caring for Naomi, and to following Naomi, it's a tremendous picture of the degree to which she loved her mother-in-law. And in a world where mother-in-laws are the bulk of... They're the brunt of so many jokes and scorn and ridicule. This is a, a beautiful passage of, of how a mother-in-law ought to be treated, ought to be revered, ought to be loved. Ruth did it right. She cares for her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law was less interested in having these girls come with her. But what we'll find as we continue is Ruth becomes one of the greatest blessings Naomi could have ever possibly... She becomes a greater blessing than Naomi could ever possibly imagine. But I'd like you to notice something else here as, as well. In verses 16 and 17, Ruth says, at the end of 17, the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Ruth has just made a vow... And as we look at the Bible here in our King James Version, you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What name did she just invoke in her vow? If, if she's using the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what is the Hebrew name that she invoked in her vow? Evan. Jehovah or Yahweh. Jehovah or Yahweh. She just swore by the Lord, and look what she just swore. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. 
your people, my people, your God, my God, where you die, I'll die. And I'll be buried where you're buried. Nothing but death will part us. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 39. 30, excuse me, Numbers chapter 30. Look with me in verse 1. And Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord, and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, And her father hear the vow and her bond, wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her. Then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. And the Lord shall forgive her, because her father disallowed her. Tremendous protection. And if she had at all in husband when she vowed or uttered aught of her lips, wherewith she is bound her soul, she bound her soul, and her husband heard it, and held his peace at her in the day he heard it, then her vow shall stand, and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband disallowed her on the day that he heard it, then he shall make her vow which she vowed, and that which she uttered with her lips wherewith she bound her soul of none effect, and the Lord shall forgive her. But every vow of a widow, verse 9, and of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. Ruth is a widow who just swore by the name of Jehovah God. She cannot backtrack on what she just said. For the rest of her life, before Jehovah God, she is bound by this vow. Forever. Until death part them. And she even said that I will die where you die and I'll be buried where you... She cannot but live the rest of her life wherever Naomi does and die in the same place. She has bound herself by the law of Jehovah God to Naomi. Verse 18, And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her. Then she left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. Yeah, we can finish. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them and they said, Is this Naomi? She said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home and again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Three things here as we close. First, Her name, Naomi, meant my delight. She says, why call me Naomi? Why call me my delight? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Now, we've come across this name Mara before in Scripture. It was not a person. It was a place. Can anyone remind me where we've seen the name Mara before? Evan. They named it... um, They named the water... um, um, I'm getting mixed up. That uh, Moses struck the rock, and the water came forth bitter. It wasn't that one, but you're you're there. Um, it, it was they named the water Mara. Can anyone elaborate? It was during the Exodus. They came to a well, a spring. They came to a place, and the water was bitter. And they complained against God, and God said, take a tree and put it into the water. And it became sweet. Remember that? And they called the place Mara, 
because it was bitter. And that's what, that's what Mara means. It means bitter. So she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me my delight. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Let me point out one more thing before we close. Mara means bitter. There have been three names for God already stated in the book. Lord, Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you point that. God, Elohim, and Almighty. That's the word Shaddai. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Shaddai being that word, Almighty. So we've seen three different words already for God in, the, in chapter 1 of Ruth. Jehovah, that ever-existent, the great I Am, no beginning, no end. God, the name, it's a generalized name. It doesn't mean necessarily the God of heaven. It could mean uh, various different gods. The general name for God speaks of might and majesty. And then Almighty, certainly speaking of His might, He is Almighty, greater than all. Three names for God already in the book of Ruth. And I turn your attention one more time. We talked about it a little at the beginning. We see the word returned again, but in verse 22 it says that they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Barley harvest was at the same time as Pentecost. This would have been around the month of Sivan which was what month in the Hebrew religious calendar? Nisan, Abib, Iyar, Zif, Sivan, right? Third, the third month. The third month in the Hebrew religious calendar, the month Sivan, during the barley harvest. And we'll pick up there next week. Are there any questions or comments um, before we... Before we close.